Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, Christine Jessup. But first, your true crime headlines. After serving 15 years in prison for murder, a Tennessee man has been exonerated by a judge who ruled that he was wrongly convicted. The Davidson County District Attorney's Office announced that, after a four-year effort by Joseph Webster's attorney to exonerate him, it, quote, no longer has confidence in the conviction against Mr. Webster, and recommended the charges against him be dismissed. Joseph Webster was convicted of first-degree murder in the death of Leroy Owens in 1998. Owens was at a friend's house when two men in a white station wagon arrived. Witnesses say that they began beating Owens over what they believed was a drug debt. Owens managed to escape his attackers and, badly beaten and missing a shoe, ran to another home. The resident turned Owens away. When he tried to run again, the men caught up with him, and he was fatally assaulted with a cinder block, according to court documents. Witnesses at the time identified the man who killed Owens as Joseph Webster. However, several of Owens's family members later told authorities that one of his relatives had admitted to the murder. The vehicle was then found to be owned by that relative. When one of the witnesses who had originally identified Webster was shown a photograph of Owens' relative, she identified him as the actual perpetrator that she had seen commit the killing, not Webster. Webster's attorney said, quote, After a decade and a half in prison for a murder that he did not commit, I am overjoyed that Joseph Webster's wrongful conviction will finally be overturned. Mr. Webster is also thinking of the entire Owens family at this time, which has to process the painful news of learning that the wrong person was convicted of committing this brutal murder. Webster's exoneration will be the first in Nashville history since the Davidson County Conviction Review Unit was established in 2016. He was transferred from Tennessee Department of Corrections custody to the downtown Nashville Detention Center Tuesday night, where he was released. A Chicago man has been arrested in connection with the shooting death of a 14-year-old girl whose body was found in a Gary, Indiana alley. Takayla Tribbett was found dead by utility workers on September 16, 2019. She died of a gunshot wound. Tribbett remained unidentified for months as the Lake County Coroner's Office awaited results of DNA analysis. Several family members came forward after a composite sketch of Tribbett and a photo of a t-shirt with the words Supergirl Power were released. Tribbett had been reported missing by a shelter in Chicago on September 1, 2019. It was unclear why Tribbett was reported missing by a shelter representative. She was not believed to be a ward of the state when she was reported missing, according to Chicago police. 35-year-old Dion Simmons was taken into custody without incident at about 11.30 a.m. on Tuesday on Chicago's south side. It is unclear what charges he may face. A Wisconsin man is facing felony charges for a school bus stop crash that killed a six-year-old girl. 
Last February, Mariana Krantz was killed outside her Plainfield home while waiting to get on the school bus. Prosecutors say that 76-year-old Carl Malenix drove around the right side of the bus on Highway 73 and struck the girl, as well as her four-year-old sister, who suffered a concussion. On Tuesday, Malenix made his first appearance in Mushera County Circuit Court on a felony charge of homicide by negligent operation of a vehicle. A signature bond was set at $10,000. He is also charged with reckless driving, causing bodily harm. He was earlier cited by the Washera County Sheriff's Office for unsafe passing on the right, inattentive driving, failure to stop for an unloading school bus, and improper passing of a stopped bus. The Krantz family has also filed a civil wrongful death lawsuit against Milenix. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Christine Jessup. But first, a quick break. After you've finished binging your favorite true crime podcast, there's always one lingering question staring you in the face. Now what? Sure, you could slip into a Wikipedia wormhole researching everything about the show. But when your brain or your browser tabs are full to the brim, it might be time to take a breather. That's when I like to clear a few levels of Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the app that engages my brain with challenging but fun puzzle games. The game is simple and fun. The good guys are the bugs and the bad guys are the slugs. Complete the puzzles to defeat the slugs, collecting keys and unlocking new fiends along the way. Like Brittle the Housefly, Edward the Mosquito, Gordon the Scorpion, and my best fiend, Pop the Axolotl. One of the things that I love about true crime is that the more you dig into the story, the more layers you uncover. And that's what's great about Best Fiends too. The more I play, the more fun it gets. I'm on level 200, and with new monthly updates, themed challenges, and holiday puzzles, there's always one more level, and the adventure never gets old. This is my pandemic must play. So the next time you need a break from the news cycle or run out of shows to binge watch, download Best Fiends free. You might find yourself wondering how you ever found time for a dull moment before. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already. It's hours of fun at your fingertips and can even be played offline. This game has 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews for a reason. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. As a kid, I loved cereal, and so did my mom. It was the fastest way to get us kids to feed ourselves and get out the door to school every morning. Just pour and go. And there was nothing better than sitting on the floor in my jammies with my cereal watching Saturday morning cartoons. But as an adult, I can't really get away with eating a big bowl of carbs and sugar anymore. I need a healthy breakfast, even if I do still sit in my pajamas and watch cartoons. But now I can have my cereal without the junk food sugar coma, with Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon is the cereal that you've been waiting for. 
It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. That's right, 0 grams of sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only 3 net grams of carbs in each serving. And no, it doesn't taste like cardboard. This is not your grandma's oat bran. Magic Spoon is everything you loved about cereal as a kid. With four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry, this cereal is so delicious you won't believe that it's actually good for you. Get the healthy cereal that Forbes magazine called the future of breakfast. Go to magicspoon.com slash murder minute to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code murder minute at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. But you'll love it. Go to magicspoon.com slash murder minute and use the code murder minute for free shipping. That's magicspoon.com slash murder minute and use the code murder minute for free shipping. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On the afternoon of Wednesday, October 3, 1984, at 3.50 p.m., 9-year-old Christine Jessup was dropped off by the school bus in Queensville, Ontario, Canada. Her parents weren't home. Her mother, Janet, and 14-year-old brother, Kenny, were out visiting her father, who was in prison. Christine wanted to go visit him, too. She begged to, but her mother said no. She said that Christine was too young to be visiting the prison. Christine brought the mail inside the house, placed it and her backpack on the kitchen counter, and walked to the convenience store nearby to buy some bubblegum. It was the last time that she would be seen alive. Christine had plans to meet up with a friend that evening at the park, but she never showed up. When Janet and Kenny returned home from the prison, Christine was nowhere to be found. They searched the park and called her friends, but there was no sign of her. I knew something wasn't right then, Janet said to CTV News. About an hour and a half after we got home, I thought, this isn't right. She'd be maybe hiding somewhere, playing a game, something like that. I got a little concerned then. When you can't find her anywhere, in the park, along the street, you know there's something wrong. Janet called the police. Soon, Christine Jessup's face would be on every newspaper and television set. York Regional Police believed that Christine was likely abducted by someone close to the family. Someone Christine knew. For weeks, the community searched for the little girl, and police interviewed friends and neighbors. But there was still no sign of Christine. It would take almost three months to find her. On New Year's Eve, 
Christine's partially decomposed body was found in a field near Sunderland, 30 miles away from Queensville. She was wearing only her sweater. The rest of her clothes were at her feet. Her legs were spread apart. Christine had been sexually assaulted and stabbed multiple times. The next day, on January 1st, 1985, Durham Regional Police took over the investigation. About a month later, they zeroed in on a suspect. Next-door neighbor, 23-year-old Guy Paul Moran, who was described as a, quote, weird-type guy. Moran still lived at home with his parents, worked as a handyman, kept bees, played the clarinet, and didn't have much of a social life. In fact, he had never had a girlfriend. On April 22, 1985, after several interviews with police, Guy Paul Morin was arrested for the murder of Christine Jessup. But Morin had an alibi. His time card at work showed that he had clocked out at 3.32 p.m., the day of Christine's murder, and he was witnessed at several locations, including the grocery store, a lottery ticket center, and the gas station. His parents and brother-in-law testified at trial that Morin arrived home at about 5.30 p.m., and that he stayed there the rest of the night. In February of 1986, Guy Paul Morin was acquitted at trial. The following month, the Crown appealed the verdict, and in June of 1987, the Ontario Court of Appeal ordered a new trial. On May 28, 1990, the second trial against Guy Paul Morin began. On July 30, 1992, Guy Paul Morin was found guilty and was sentenced to life in prison. Unlike other child sex offenders, Morin was kept with the general population. He refused protective custody or segregation. And Morin maintained his innocence. In 1995, Morin's legal team ordered tests of his DNA against semen found on Christine's clothes. When he was first charged, a decade earlier in 1985, DNA analysis was in its infancy. But by the mid-90s, the technology had significantly advanced. The DNA test results proved with certainty that Guy Paul Morin was innocent. On January 23, 1995, Morin was formally acquitted of all charges and was released from prison. For his wrongful conviction, Guy Paul Morin received compensation of $1.2 million. I myself knew, and my husband knew that he was innocent. Morin's mother, Ida, said, we could account for him, and twice we've written to that effect, once at the first trial and once at the second. 
it is a terrible thing not to be believed. The truth was not enough, and that is unfortunate. In October of 2020, police once again knocked on Guy Paul Morin's door. They said, We'll be brief, but we just want to apologize to you about what happened to you over the years. We have found the person responsible for Christine Jessup's murder. On October 15, 2020, police officials announced that by using a new technique for tracing criminals through the DNA of their relatives, they had confirmed that Christine Jessup was killed by a family friend, Calvin Hoover. Calvin Hoover's DNA was a match to the semen found on Christine's underwear. He was 28 at the time of Christine's murder. After 36 years, Christine's family reacted to the news. Kenny Jessup, Christine's older brother, described his feelings to the global news. Relief that we finally have the answer we waited for. Angry about who it is. Frustrated, sad, he said. Like anything in this case, it couldn't be a simple answer. It had to be someone we knew well. Calvin Hoover, his wife Heather, and their children were friends of the Jessops, and the families used to get together for barbecues. Hoover even assisted in the search efforts for Christine and attended her wake and funeral. There were three people my mother told that morning when we went to visit my dad in jail and that Christine wasn't coming, Ken said, but he had forgotten that Hoover's wife was one of them. Before they left for the visit, their mother Janet had phoned their father's lawyer, his boss, and Hoover's wife, Heather. When she was on the phone with Hoover's wife, Christine was having a tantrum wanting to see her father, Ken said. She hadn't seen her father in a month, and she was told, Christine, you're too young, you can't, so... Hoover's wife sympathized with that and must have told Hoover in passing. He saw his opportunity, his chance, and he took it. There was nothing random about this. Calvin Hoover committed suicide in 2015. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.